go ahead and move into our teaching for this morning. We are going to be in Second uh, Samuel. We're continuing in our series on the life of David. So this morning we're going to be in Second Samuel, and we are in chapter 2. So if you have your Bible with you, you can uh, turn there, or you can read, with this, uh, uh, read along with us on the screens next to me. But we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter 2 today. All right, so we're, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at about the first half of this chapter, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Sometime later, David inquired of the Lord, should I go to one of the towns of Judah? The Lord answered him, go. Then David asked, where should I go? To Hebron, the Lord replied. So David went there with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. In addition, David brought the men who were with him, each one with his family, and they settled in the towns near Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, The Lord bless you, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord when you buried him. Now may the Lord show kindness and faithfulness to you, and I also show the same goodness to you, because you have done this deed. Therefore, be strong and valiant. For though Saul your Lord is dead, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Saul's son Ishbosheth and moved him to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asher, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Saul's son Ishbosheth was 40 years old when he became king over Israel. He reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Have you ever learned the lesson of how going through a period of waiting can make uh, that thing that you were anticipating or waiting for, once you receive it, so much sweeter? This is a lesson that we try to teach our kids all the time whenever they are looking forward to something, whether it be something in several months, whether it be in a year, or whether it be tomorrow. Just helping them to understand, well, it's not here yet, we got to wait for it, but it can also be, there can be a blessing in waiting. There's this uh, sweet anticipation that can come with the waiting, and then once you uh, go through that period of waiting where you uh, look forward to and think about and dream about what you're waiting for, and then you get it, it can make getting that thing, whatever it is, whether it be you know, a gift, whether it be uh, the opportunity to go somewhere, see someone, it makes that uh, receiving the gift so much sweeter, it makes it so much better. Can you imagine the sweetness for David of finally receiving the kingdom that God had promised to him. It had been years at this point. He had been anointed as king by, uh, as the future king by Samuel years before this, but he had to wait for a long, long time. He had to go through many different trials. He had to go through opposition. He had to live as a uh, refugee, as an outlaw in the wilderness, running from Saul, trying to take his life. Think of all that David had to go through and all the, he, uh, the, the amount of time that he had to wait in the opposition to get what he was waiting for, what God had promised to him. And then here we see in 2 Samuel chapter 2, he finally receives it. There in Hebron, he receives this anointing as king. Can you imagine the sweetness of that moment? However, do you think that, if you, if, if you were reading carefully with us, do you think that what David was anticipating and dreaming about and thinking about and looking forward to trying to hold on to in faith that God had promised it to him. Do you think that this is exactly what he had in mind, though? Because uh, Hebron was not a major town or city, city of Israel. 
It was, in fact, kind of a backwater town, a, a place that wasn't, uh, you know, all, all that uh, big and, and renowned. Like I said, it was kind of a kind of a nowhere place. But this is where God calls him to go to, and there he is anointed king. But it's not over all of Israel. It's one tribe that recognizes him as king. And, all the, and the other tribes and all the rest of Israel, they go after another king, a, a, a rogue king with a, with a uh, commander that is pulling the strings there. So here is David finally getting what he has been looking forward to from God. His anointing a king, but not over all of Israel, and not with a great uh, and, and beautiful, glorious inauguration, but with just one tribe in kind of a backwater town of the nation of Israel. So with all that anticipation, and with all that waiting, still David gets to the place that he had been waiting for, and it probably isn't exactly what he had imagined. His reign as king starts off, like I said, not with a beautiful inauguration with pomp and ceremony and, and all the tribes of Israel gathered around. Instead, his rule starts off with a divided kingdom. It's a pretty small and a seemingly vulnerable, weak way to start your reign as the king over, as the new king, right? But this is where David starts. This is where God has him. It's an ancient story, one where there's all different things at play. There's the spirituality of it in David's relationship with God, his following God. There's the politics at work in, in David becoming king, but then also uh, one of Saul's commanders, Abner, in the house of Saul, still opposing him. And so it's this ancient story, and there's all these different things at play. But what we need to see is that though it's an ancient story and with people who are far removed from us, this story actually has some pretty incredible relevance to our lives today. And here's why. Because what we can learn from this story in David's divided kingdom is we can learn how God's kingdom is opposed by man's kingdom. Because ultimately, that is what's happening here, and that's what we can learn and, and pull from it. We can see how God's kingdom is opposed by man's kingdom and how we are invited by our king to join his, and, and follow his rule. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in the beginning of David's reign and his divided kingdom. We're going to look at God's kingdom, the beginning part of this passage where David becomes king. But then we're going to jump down to the bottom, and we're going to look at man's kingdom, what, what's happening there with Abner and Ishbosheth. And then we're going to jump back to the middle, and we're going to consider the appeal. So we're, going to, we're not going to take the story exactly in order, but I think it's going to help us to see this clearly. So we're going to look at God's kingdom, man's kingdom, and then the appeal that is made to us to join God's kingdom. So let's begin by looking at God's kingdom. Let's say that you were at a restaurant, and you were given a, a game. You have to guess who's the boss in this restaurant without being told any other details. You just have to look at all the, the workers and the staff who are there and guess who here is the boss. How would you do it? Well, maybe you would look for some different uh, identifying markers that would tell you who's the boss. Maybe the boss is, is wearing something different. But let's say that they're all dressed uh, uh, same enough to where there's really no distinguishable difference over who's the boss and who's not. You know, it's not like Chick-fil-A where the boss has got a nice uh, different color polo than the rest of them or something like that. They're all dressed about the same. And so you have to sit there. Well, what would you do to figure out who is the boss? Well, you would start watching the interactions of the guests and the staff, and then the staff and the staff. You would watch the interactions, and you would see who has the, the authority to call the shots here. Whenever guests come in and they ask, can you move these tables around, or, or, or can you change this, can you do this for us, and the staff go and they ask somebody, then you think, oh, well, maybe, maybe that person is boss because they have the authority to call the shots, and then you see, but then you see that person then go talk to someone else, and they start to look like the boss, and you see that that person is actually walking around, and they are greeting guests, and they are uh, managing the staff. They are ordering the staff in which way to go, how to move tables, how to get orders out. In other words, you look around and you see who in there, who in there has the authority. Who in that room out of all those people has the authority? Who in there has the ability to call the shots to say, we're going to do this and we're not going to do that? Once you identify who has the authority to call the shots, then you know that's the one here who is the boss. 
Now notice, whenever we read 2 Samuel chapter 2, if we were to ask the same question, who's the boss? Who is in charge? We could actually apply the same strategy. We would look at it and we would say, who has the authority to call the shots? Well, it's answered right there in those first couple of verses. If you remember, David is still in Ziklag. He is still in Philistia, the land of the Philistines. At the end of uh, 1 Samuel, he had to flee into Philistia to finally get away from Saul. So he had been living in this sort of very precarious situation, this uneasy tension with some of the Philistines that he was in better favor with, but separated from Israel. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 2, he finally asked God, is it time for me to go back? Is it time for me to go to Israel? And God says, yes, it's time to go. And he says, where am I going to go in Israel? And he says, you're going to go to Hebron. So what does our strategy tell us? Who has the authority to call the shots here? Is it David? No, it's God. You see, what this tells us is this. David, the man after God's own heart, the chosen king, the giant slayer, the, the greatest warrior that had ever been seen in Israel, if not the greatest man who had ever been seen in Israel and Judah, even he, even him, is under the authority of someone else. Even he, the king, is under the authority of God. Here's what we learn about God's kingdom, and so our first point for today. In God's kingdom, Christ is Lord. In God's kingdom, Christ is Lord. In God's kingdom, God is boss. He has the authority. So what does it mean to live in God's kingdom and to become a member of God's kingdom? What does it mean to follow God in his kingdom? Well, we can flesh it out in a lot of different ways. And really, your whole Christian life is learning how to apply this. This one simple principle I'm going to give you, this easy way of understanding it, it means that God is your authority. It means that God is your authority. Just like David, you might be given a certain amount of reign in your life. Whether you are single, whether you have a family, whether you have kids or whether you don't have kids, God has put you in, in your life, wherever you are, with a certain amount of reign, with a certain amount of authority over the, the things in your sphere of influence or possession, right? Just like God called Adam and Eve to exercise care and dominion over the garden that he had given them, God does the same for you today. Now, for, for some of us, it, it's quite small. For some of us, our reign of dominion is a dorm room. It's, or maybe it's half of a dorm room because we're sharing it with someone else. Maybe for some of us, it's an apartment, a home. Maybe for some of us, it's just, it's just us. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's us and, and our spouse and, or us and our kids. But we all have a different uh, rain, uh, area of rain or something that God has put in your life that he has given you dominion over to take care of, to keep and protect. But you, even as you live as a little K king over the realm and, and, and uh, reign that God has given you, you are not the ultimate authority. Just like David was not the ultimate authority, even though he was king over a nation, God was still his boss. God was still the ultimate authority. And so the same is true for us. What does it mean to live in God's kingdom? It means that we, living as we are with our different uh, areas of reign or rule, are in ultimate submission to the real authority, which is God. We obey his word. We obey his word whenever he tells us when to go and whenever he tells us where to go. We obey his authority whenever he tells us what to believe and what not ought to believe. And we obey his authority whenever he tells us what to say and what we ought not to say, what we ought to value and what we ought not to value, how we are to use our possessions, our money, our, our material possessions, our opportunities, our relationships. We use them in the way that he tells us to, and we do not in the way that he forbids. We do not ultimately decide our own destiny, but we follow the path that he puts before us. We do not follow our own wisdom, but we follow his. We do not follow the wisdom of the world, but we follow his above all. We recognize that not only we do not have the ultimate authority and final word of our own life, but neither does anyone else. Our boss, 
your parents. No, uh, no civic leaders and no, uh, no senators, representatives, Supreme Court justices, or presidents have ultimate, the ultimate authority or final word of our life, but God does. And each one of these authorities, which are in uh, over our lives, we submit to them in the proper order because God is our true king. David does not make a move until God tells him when and where. But friends, how often in our lives are we running around as though we're, <laughs> we're the emperor? We are the supreme, not giving any acknowledgement to what is God's will for our life. How frequently do we, do we catch ourselves absorbing the messages of the world and absorbing the values of our culture, adopting the assumptions of the wisdom of pundits and, and, uh, and uh, non-godly thinkers, rather than following what is God's word and the assumptions that he wants us to hold and the values that he wants us to protect and live by. If we are going to live in God's kingdom, it means that we follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We submit to him and, and joyfully obey him with our all. Whenever we do that, what does it mean to joyfully obey God with our all? Well, I just referenced a verse, but I changed the word, right? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that verse tell us? It says to what with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Love. How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? By obeying him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what it means to live in God's kingdom where Jesus is Lord, where, where God is the ultimate authority. But what else can we say about God's kingdom? Just a, a couple of observations from this story here that applies even to God's kingdom today, some things that we can say. First of all, the kingdom begins small. The kingdom begins small. <laughs> if you put yourself in David's sandals, do you think that he really imagined his inauguration to be this way? Wouldn't it have, have, have had to be a little kind of deflating? Like, uh, here, you know, imagine, if, uh, imagine if, the, if the next president was inaugurated in Bunky. Right? Like, oh, that's not what you wanted. That's not, that's not where you wanted this to be. So, no offense. Uh, <laughs> God loves Bunky, too. Um, and, and that's where, and, and it's exactly in, a, in, a, in, in the bunkie of, of Judah is exactly where he chose to anoint David. And it's not the whole nation, but it's just the faithful men and their families who have been following him and this one tribe. David's kingdom, which was God's chosen kingdom, in a sense his eternal kingdom through which he would send his Messiah, starts out really small. Starts out really small. But look at what it's going to grow into. Consider what God did through this small kingdom beginning here, not just in David's life, but over the course of Scripture and what he is doing today. The kingdom that God inaugurated with David and Judah and Hebron is living today here. You see, we are still experiencing, we, we are a part of the kingdom that God inaugurated with David. And the church across the world, which is continually uh, uh, battling sin, right, and the opposition of the world, but growing still because the gospel cannot be hindered, this movement that we see even across our world today began here. Um, so what does it mean? It means don't look down on small beginnings. Don't look down on small beginnings. In Matthew chapter uh, 13, Jesus as well, in one of his parables, compared the kingdom to a mustard seed, right? So he compared it to a mustard seed. It starts out small, but then he said it grows into this great tree, a tree that is larger than any other on earth, so large that all the birds of the world could come and rest and nest in its branches. Starts out small, but it grows incrementally, slowly over time, into something uh, powerful, large, and glorious. This is how the kingdom works. It starts out small, but it grows. So do not look down on small beginnings and do not get discouraged by small things. The kingdom begins small. The second thing that we can say about the kingdom 
based off of this story, is that it begins unimpressive but full of potential. Unimpressive. David did not get uh, inaugurated in one, of the, in one of the big towns, but one of the small towns, not with, with all the tribes around him, but with just one of them. It's not what he anticipated. It's a pretty unimpressive way to start. There's not a lot of glory in David's inauguration here. But like I already pointed out before, but look at the potential. Look at where David's kingdom eventually goes. We're going to see over the course of 2 Samuel how though it starts out small and unimpressive, though he starts out with a divided kingdom, David is going to be the first king to rule over a united Israel, over all the tribes, defeating their enemies and, and providing peace and prosperity for the people. Now, the nation of Israel, it goes through its ups and downs over the course of time, but, but look at what it grows into, and then look at what uh, it turns into whenever Christ comes and takes the seat of king in God's kingdom. Right? And then look at what it grows into then. So though it starts out small, and though it starts out maybe unimpressive, it is full of potential. Now, what do these things mean for our life? It means this. It means embrace where you're at. Embrace where you were at. That was David's only choice. He asked God, should I go now? And God said, yes. He said, where should I go? And God told him there. God told him to the place that was going to be small and to the place that was going to be unimpressive. The place where, oh, David realizes, I'm going to be going through another season of some waiting. There's going to be some more conflict. There's going to be some more growth and some more lessons to come before I get the full, receive the full promise that I've been waiting for from God. Embrace wherever it is that you are at. Hold on to God's promises even when you feel like you're in a season of waiting or preparation. And don't discount what God is doing during that season. Some of you guys may be going through a wilderness season right now, right? One where it, it is very difficult. You're going up against opposition or you're going up against suffering or you're just going up against a lot of struggle. You're going through doubt and you are, you are, uh, you're feeling the tensions between uh, trying to follow God's promises and continuing to believe in his promises and stay faithful to those things while you're in that stage. Maybe you're coming out of that stage where things are better, but you might be going into a Hebron stage, like David is going through here. Wherever you are at, don't discount what God is doing during that time. Don't discount what God is doing in your waiting and in your preparation because like David, waiting for greater power and glory, God might have greater things ahead for you. God might have greater things ahead for you that he is preparing you for, right? The David that we saw very early on in 1 Samuel is not the David who was ready for this. He had to go through those periods. He had to go through those times. There were some lessons that God wanted him to learn and some growth he wanted him to experience, Similarly for you, if you're going through a wilderness stage or if you're in a Hebron stage, God might have some greater things ahead for you, and he's preparing you for them. The question is, are you humble enough to embrace where you're at? Outside of just experiencing great suffering, most often when we're going through a Hebron stage, what is contributing to our suffering is not anything that is happening to us, but what we're doing to ourselves and not being willing to humbly wait and not being willing to humbly grow and learn and receive the setbacks and receive the lessons and fail and get back up again, learn from it, fail, get back up again and learn from it. Usually we suffer through Hebron stages, not because of anything God is doing to us, and not because of anything the world is doing to you or, or, or what someone else might be doing to you, but just because your pride is causing you this anxiety of just wanting to get the heck out of Hebron. So the question is, are you humble enough to do God's kingdom work now where he has you, in the season that he has you in, or are you only looking forward to what you think is on the horizon and, in, and imagining the great kingdom work that you'll do then.
Let's consider man's kingdom. Our point about man's kingdom is this. I'll give you the point, and then we'll look at it in the text. The kingdom of man opposes the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is where God rules. Christ rules. He reigns. He is the authority. The kingdom of man is that which opposes the kingdom of God. We see this in this story here. So David is finally uh, anointed. He is king uh, over the, the tribe of Judah is following him as their king. Once Abner catches wind of this, and the text tells us that the timelines don't match up exactly, right? Um, because Ishbosheth was only king for two years, and it tells us that David was king in Hebron for about seven and a half years. So the timelines is telling you, like, these, these events overlap. Uh, we don't know exactly where, but they overlap in a certain uh, place. They're not happening exactly simultaneously. Just the text tells us that itself, that the timelines are overlapping somewhere. But Abner, <coughs> you might remember Abner from 1 Samuel. He was Saul's major general, if you want to put it that way. He was at the top of Saul's military cabinet. He was the commander over the army, Saul's bodyguard, his, his number one guy. This is a powerful man. Somehow, he must have survived that, uh, that battle at Gilboa where everyone else had died. Abner survived, and he is now trying to salvage his place, right? Because is he concerned, really, with the house of Saul continuing to reign? Perhaps. Maybe he was a fiercely loyal personality. Or was he concerned about keeping his position of power? Because what he does, once he hears, he catches wind of, of David, and David having been anointed king, what well, he's concerned for what that means for him, because he knows that he's not in the best of, uh, <laughs> David doesn't see him in the best light. And so there might be some consequences for him once David gets his hands on him. So he tries to protect his place of power. He tries to protect his job. So he essentially sets up a, a dummy king. He essentially, he goes and he sets up somebody who sits in the, in the seat of authority, but where Abner can really continue to keep his place, right? So he gets one of Saul's sons who had survived the battle. He wasn't at the battle, uh, named Ishbosheth. We hadn't even heard of this guy up until this point. Like we said before, it told us that Saul and all of his sons died at Gilboa, but this guy's still around. These are some subtle hints that should tell you, like, kind of the, the quality of Ishbosheth, right? He wasn't the, the most outstanding of Saul's sons. He was the perfect guy to be a puppet for Abner. The perfect puppet king for Abner just sit, say, sit there and enjoy your spot, and you let me run the show from here. And so that's what Abner does. He sets up Ishbosheth as king, and all of the tribes follow Ishbosheth and Abner, except for Judah. So as I said before, David begins his reign with a divided kingdom. But what is Abner doing here? Because even Saul, if you remember, and you, you can go back and read this in the last few chapters, of, uh, especially chapter 28, I, I think. Uh, I'm bad with numbers, so I get them mixed up. But I think it was chapter 28 in 1 Samuel where, where Saul finally acknowledged that David would be king. Okay, so even Saul, the tyrant, the, the paranoid uh, killer, came to the place where he was finally convinced that David would be the next king. But Abner is a more obstinate man. He will not accept David's rule over him. And here's what we need to recognize, that this goes deeper than just a conflict between David and Abner. Abner is not just willing to not submit to David. Abner is not willing to submit to Yahweh. Abner is not willing to submit to God. He's not willing to be a citizen in God's kingdom because being a citizen in God's kingdom, which would have been David's kingdom here, would have not just meant submitting to David, but then submitting to God. In Saul's kingdom, he was allowed to not really have to submit to anybody, but just keep Saul happy, keep, keep working for Saul, you know, keep the boss man happy. Outside of that, you can do what you want. But in David's kingdom, he would have to follow, David as, uh, he would have to follow uh, Yahweh as Lord. It is not just a rebellion against David, it is a rebellion against God. Abner and men like him, other uh, political rulers or people, men, women in places of authority, are written about in Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, verse 2 and 3, it said, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. 
Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. You see, this in Abner is a picture, and what we read about in Psalm 2 is a description of the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is opposed to the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of man is opposed to the rule of God. Within the kingdom of man, the, the central issue and primary value is that man remains the, the ultimate authority and not God. It's a rebellion against the kingdom of God, but remember, it is a rebellion against the rule, which means the authority of God over us. And so the kingdom of man, uh, as it talks about here, takes its stand and conspires against the kingdom of God because men and women and, and leaders and so on desire that they might retain their supreme authority over their own lives, that they might remain uh, the boss, that they might remain the ones who get to call the shots. And even as we continue to look at our world today, this is the, the heart of the conflict, the heart of the conflict wherever we might see conflict whether it is conflict in our nation, whether it is conflict in the culture wars, whether it is conflict between uh, the so-called conflict between science and faith, wherever we see conflict today, the central issue is this one. Who has the authority? Who has the final word? Whenever we look at the conflicts between the church and the world today, and the conflicts in our culture wars between those who try to hold to God's word and follow what it says, following biblical values and a world that opposes it, the central issue is this one once again. It is who has the authority? Who has the authority? Paul explained it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Paul here describes for us not just what was the former way of life for those who are now Christians, but he is also describing for us a picture of how the kingdom of man uh, organizes its opposition to the kingdom of God, that it might retain its authority in resistance to God. He, Paul tells us about three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three areas that Paul tells us about and how uh, there is opposition to the kingdom of God. First of all, he tells about the world. He said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. The world resists the rule and the authority of God. And we can see this in nations. We can see this in institutions. We can see this in um, maybe in different uh, cultural institutions or, 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 or uh, organized societies and so on that oppose God's authority and instead choose to make man and man's wisdom the measure of all things to follow uh, their own definitions of what is truth, goodness, beauty, justice, and so on, rather than following what God's word and obeying what God's word has to say about these issues. What we need to understand in trying to draw this out, and we'll see it with the next one, is that beneath all the headlines, beneath all, like I said before, the culture wars, beneath all the debates, beneath all of the angry tweets at, from one back to another and so on, beneath it all, there is a spiritual struggle happening. It is not just about political strategy, and it's not just about policies, and it's not just about uh, the, the policies of institutions and so on. It is a spiritual struggle of the kingdom of man resisting God's authority. That's what Scripture shows us. It is the way according to the world, Paul says. But then he also mentions the devil, he said, we walked not only according to the ways of this world, but also according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. So this world resists God's authority, not just in nations, institutions, and cultures, and so on, but also there is an enemy. The devil is working through the various, these various things and the various powers at work in the world to resist the kingdom of God. Once again, we need to recognize and understand that we are waging a spiritual war. 
that we are resisting not just institutions, but we are resisting spirits. We are resisting the devil and his demons who are at work through these institutions. We can see in Scripture how even, uh, you know, Daniel has a vision where he sees these different nations and, 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 um, and city-states going to war with one another, but he doesn't see the city-states themselves going to war with one another, but instead he sees angels. He sees the angels of this city and this city go to battle with one another. That's a picture of a reality which is actually at work in the world, that we, we are once again not just seeing battles with flesh and blood, but as Paul says, but with powers and principalities at work behind all of those things. We need the equipping and the empowering of the Holy Spirit because we are in a spiritual world against the devil and demons who are opposed to the kingdom of God and want to fight it with all their might. The three arenas of battle are the world, the devil, and then lastly, the flesh. This is individual resistance to the work of God and Christ's rule. Paul said we used to uh, carry out our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of flesh and thoughts. Those are, the other two points are about big things, right? Nations, institutions, uh, spiritual powers. But the last one, the flesh, that's me and you. That is individuals. That's me and you and other individuals in the world and our own individual um, efforts to resist the kingdom of God in our own life. What this means for us, that the kingdom of man is opposed to the kingdom of God, and, and it can happen in these different major arenas of battle, what it means for us who are trying to follow the word and following God as our, as our king is it means that we need to follow Christ as Lord no matter the world's opposition. As long as we're in this world and until Christ returns and finally establishes his rule, we are going to be facing opposition. We will face war, war with institutions, war, as Paul said, with powers and principalities, and a war within a war against our own flesh, war against our own heart and the idols that the heart sets up for itself, which would oppose God's authority over our lives. However, no matter what opposition we face, and no matter how weary sometimes we get or discouraged we get at times in the battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we must continue to follow Christ as our Lord no matter all of these things, because this is our calling. David and his men and Judah were following God's calling on their lives. God went to Hebron. He's obeying David. They are following God despite all that was stacked against them, despite all of the opposition, just as they had been doing throughout the wilderness. This is our calling as well. No matter how much is stacked up against us, we continue to follow God. Even in the low times, in the times of challenge, in the times of discouragement, or in the days of small things, we follow our calling. In Psalm 110, it tells us that, that the world, the flesh, and the devil will finally be subjected by Christ. In Psalm 110, it says, this is, the, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. So this is God the Father speaking to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The kingdom of man rages and opposes and takes its stand and conspires, as we looked at before, whether it be in the, in the world, whether it be the devil and the powers and principalities at work. They, they, they fight with all their might, but we know that Jesus, our king, who won his kingship through his resurrection and defeat of death, is slowly but surely expanding his rule and reign until he finally, as it says here, has all of his enemies under his feet. He has them all subjected. He has them all defeated. And he reigns and rules as, uh, as the alone authority. So what happens whenever we get discouraged? What happens whenever our hopes are deflated or we start to look around at the world, we look at cultural trends or we look at different events, we look at ways that it seems as though we have been, the church has been set back, our community has been set back, or we have been opposed, whatever else it might be. And we're tempted to just give up. We're tempted to retreat from the war. Or we just admit, I'm so disheartened. What do we do? We remember 
Psalm 110, that God promised and his resurrection of, and the resurrection of Jesus is the, is the security that we have that despite what we see in the small and temporary, he is making all of his enemies his footstool. He is bringing them all under the, the uh, reign of his scepter, which says is extending from Zion over all of his surrounding enemies. We remember this, that as long as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, then his kingdom is expanding despite what we see in the uh, small and temporary, and so we have reason to continue because his kingdom cannot be defeated. As long as Christ cannot be put back in the tomb, his kingdom cannot be defeated. And friends, that's why we don't retreat. This is why, whenever you are tempted to be disheartened, discouraged, this is why you need to take heart and take courage. Because Christ is still resurrected and Christ still reigns. So follow the Lord no matter how the kingdom of man opposes it. Lastly, we see the appeal. This is the middle section of the story in 2 Samuel chapter 2. We see David's uh, anointing at the beginning. We see Abner and Ishbosheth and them dividing and setting up their own kingdom at the end. But there's that section in the middle there. After David is anointed by the men of Judah, they tell, they tell him, hey, there's this group that you need to know about. It was a group, it was from a town that was uh, northern from where they were. Judah in Hebron was in the very, very southern part of Israel. But there was this group up in the north called uh, Jabesh-Gilead. They said, you need to know about Jabesh-Gilead. Because they were the ones, if you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel, whenever Saul had been killed, uh, well, whenever Saul fell on his own sword in battle, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who were not terribly far. They were far. Uh, what was it? I said in that sermon, I think it was about a 20-mile uh, round trip or so. Uh, it was either 20 miles one way or a round trip. I can't remember. It was a good distance. Let's put it that way. The men of Jabesh Gilead were, were a good distance away, but a doable distance away from Mount Gilboa where Saul's body laid. Whenever they heard that he had fallen, they did not want his body to uh, get into Philistine hands so that the Philistines could bring him back to their towns and set up his body for display paraded around their cities, and so on. So they went on this overnight clandestine mission to recover the body of Saul and bring it back to Jabesh-Gilead and then bury it. Now, what they did showed, number one, an incredible amount of courage, but then number two, it showed an incredible amount of loyalty. It showed an incredible amount of loyalty to their king. So here is David, the new king, and the men of Judah tell him, hey, you need to know about these guys right? They're, they're valiant. They are strong, and they are loyal. They were incredibly loyal to Saul. You better make sure they're loyal to you, too. So David sees an opportunity here. He sees an opportunity. These men who, were, who had risked their necks to recover Saul's dead body because of their loyalty to him, was it because their loyalty was to him or it was to the kingship of Israel. Does that make sense? Was it to the man or was it to the office? And so what David does in order to try to extend his, his reign to a more northern area and to get the, the, uh, the, the following of this incredible city and these incredible men is he makes an appeal to them. And so that's what we see in verses 5 through 7 where David sends word to them and he says, I have heard what you did for your king. And he, said, and he expresses gratitude. He says, and I'm blown away. He says, I'm blown away. It's incredible what you have done, the valor that you showed. And he, he calls that God might bless them. He said, so he expresses gratitude. He says, may God bless you. And even I would like to bless you because of the valor and the loyalty that you have shown for Israel and her king. And then at the end, he makes an appeal. And I'm inviting you to follow me because I am the new king. Other kings of the world might have heard about the men of Jabesh-Gilead and then gone to war because they, they saw a threat. But David, God's king, God's chosen one, instead made an invitation. He didn't see enemies. He saw people he wanted on his side. He saw people he wanted in his kingdom. And so he makes a, an incredibly humble 
and an incredibly gentle appeal to them to follow him as their king now. He makes this gracious appeal. It's an incredible thing to see, this move that David makes here. It shows a lot of character, and it shows the kind of leader who, uh, it shows how a leader who follows God acts. But what it shows us is something else. It reminds us of how the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, invites us into his kingdom as well. We who are fiercely loyal to the world, we who followed the prince of the power, right, the, the, the ruler of the air and the spirit of this age in disobedience, and we who gave in and carried out all the desires and inclinations of our flesh, we who he might have seen as his enemies, instead he sees as people that he wants in his kingdom, people that he wants on his side, people that he wants not just as, his, uh, as subjects of his kingdom, but co-heirs with him, his friends, his brothers and sisters, apart. Uh, he wanted us to be uh, with him so much so that, it, like I said before, it's greater than just a king of subjects. Our being united with Christ is being described in the New Testament as our being a part of his own body. This is how Jesus, our king, sees you and I. And he does not come to us with the sword. He does not come to us with a threat. Instead, he comes to us with a gentle appeal, with an invitation. Maybe one of the best we see in Matthew chapter 11 he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What kind of a king? What kind of a king who has supreme authority, who is <coughs> not just the greatest who is greater than the greatest warrior man has ever seen because he did not defeat uh, any army, but he defeated death itself. Christus Victor, right? This king describes himself with these words, I am lowly and humble in heart, and this is why you should follow me. The gracious appeal that we see in David, as, as incredible as it is and as humble as it is, as it is, is nothing compared to David's descendant, and how he invites you and I to come into his kingdom. What we learn is this, that Christ the Lord makes a gracious appeal to us to join his kingdom. He makes that gracious appeal because he received the sword for us. He received our punishment and our condemnation so that we, instead of being invited into the kingdom through, through threat and wrath, might instead be in, invited through he who is lowly and humble in heart. Here's the thing. We know from reading the Bible, we know from passages such as Psalm 110 and many others, we know that eventually everyone, every single person on this earth, who has ever existed and whoever will exist, we know that eventually every single knee will bow. We will all eventually, regardless of what we do now, regardless of how much we might fight it now, we will all eventually be subjected to Christ as our king. The question is, will we enter under his reign through the cross, which is the way of redemption, which means entering his kingdom as, as a son of God and being a citizen of that kingdom, or will we enter his kingdom under the sword? Will we be subjected to Christ by his wrath? Will we be subjected to Christ in his rule by his... By his uh, by his judgment and his justice, or by his mercy and grace. That appeal is made to us today. If you have not followed him yet, let me, let me encourage you and let me make a gracious appeal to you as well, that you might enter Jesus' kingdom through the cross and not through the sword, that you might come into his kingdom through the work that he has done and experience the freedom of forgiveness from sin and the freedom and the joy that it is to love, obey God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the incredible daily privilege and glory that it is to be a citizen of God's kingdom, despite what it might look like sometimes in the temporary. For those who are citizens in his kingdom, we know that there's no better way. There's no better life, no better gift. Make that decision. Respond to that appeal from Christ 
now. Because we will all enter either under the cross or the sword. Enter under the cross. Let's pray. Lord, it is is a sober reminder that now we we are being offered the hand of mercy. We're being offered the way of the cross. We are being given a gentle appeal that we are um, invited to you and drawn to you through your loving kindness. But Father, if we delay, if we resist, if we object, if we disobey, if we turn down, Lord, then then that cross will turn to the sword and the hand of mercy will turn to a hand of judgment. And rather than receiving loving kindness, we will instead receive wrath. Lord, this is, as I said before, a sober reminder for us. So Father, help us to experience and see now the beauty and the appeal of your loving kindness, of your mercy for us, of your grace for us, of how gently you handle us, how you come before us, Lord, and not, not in power and not, and not in, in, uh, in, in, in threat, but instead you come to us describing yourself as lowly and humble of heart and how whenever we take your yoke upon us, it is one that gives us rest instead of exasperation. Father, I ask that your spirit would be at work in this room. That your spirit would be at work to to dispel the voices that people hear telling them to resist. That it would be at work to drive away the devil and his servants who might tell uh, doubting hearts in here that this message of good news is not for them or that the gentleness of Christ is not extended to them as well. Father, we recognize that spiritual battle, and so we ask that you would wage war against it with us on behalf of us now, so that all of us in here, whether it be for the first time or whether it be a time of renewal this morning, might come before you in absolute allegiance, and that we might uh, remove and repent from the sin in our life and joyfully, lovingly obey you with our all. We pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.